0: Friend, in Jesus, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. I was away last week, but two weeks ago we were in chapter 3, where we watched as battle lines formed between those who opposed Jesus and those who followed Jesus. But as we're turning to Mark chapter 4 now, we are turning to a short collection of Jesus' parables. Now, Mark includes far fewer parables than either Matthew or Luke do, and most of the parables he does share are found here in chapter 4. And of these parables, we want to look at just the first today, the parable of the sower. But Jesus himself tells us in this passage that this parable is particularly important. As Jesus will explain in verse 13, if you do not understand this parable... How will you understand all of the parables? Obviously, then, we should pay careful attention to these verses before us. So let's read together Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Listen to God's word. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. "'Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up again and choked it, and it yielded no grain. "'Other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding "'thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. "'And he said, "'He who has ears to hear, let him hear.' "'And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables.' are the ones sown among thorns, and they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. What a privilege. May we never forget the privilege it is that you have given us your words, that you have revealed to us salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would listen eagerly as you speak to us week after week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus' parable of the sower here is one of his most well-known parables. It's a parable based on farming. And it's an example that almost anyone could relate to. Of course, a lot has changed in farming since Jesus first told this parable. Perhaps if Jesus was speaking to us today and using a parable, he might say it something like this. He might say, a farmer sat in his air-conditioned, Bluetooth-equipped cab listening to his iTunes playlist as he watched the screen as the GPS-guided seed was planted in perfect rows, acre after acre. Perhaps in an age of fertilizers and sprinkler systems and perfecting of the science of farming, talking about rocks in the field or thorns choking out the the seeds might seem out of place. But despite all these differences, the heart of the parable would be just the same— and just as true. And that is this, that many seeds are planted, but the outcome is not the same for all of them. You know, this parable is really simple and straightforward. As Jesus himself implies, it's a parable that demands application and self-examination of our hearts. And yet, as we will see, the main point of this parable is not that we better shape up our hearts The main point of this parable is that despite all the odds, the harvest is under the sovereign hand of God. And precisely because of that fact, the harvest is going to defy every expectation and produce an abundant, glorious, hundredfold harvest to the glory of His name. That's what I hope we come away with this morning. And I want us to see this point as we look at the importance of the parable, the meaning of the parable, and then the application of the parable. So let's start with the importance of the parable, which we find in verses 1 through 13. Jesus is here again teaching beside the sea. And if if you just think back over the first four chapters of Mark, you will realize that he is by the sea quite frequently Jesus walked beside the sea. He called disciples beside the sea. He healed beside the sea. He taught beside the sea. It seems that the crowds expected to find him beside the sea and went out to him there repeatedly. Back in chapter 3, the crowds were pressing Jesus so hard by the sea that the disciples got a boat ready just in case they needed to rescue him seems that they didn't at that point, but here in chapter 4, he actually uses the boat because of the large size of the crowd, and we find him floating on the side of the lake teaching the crowds on the shore. Now we're told that Jesus taught many things in parables on this occasion, but the first parable recorded, and it's true in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, is the parable of the sower. And Jesus puts a particular emphasis on the parable. He emphasizes it by telling it first, but he also emphasizes it by beginning and ending the parable with the command to listen. You see that right there in verse 3. As far as I can aware, it is one of, if not the only, parable that starts and ends with the exhortation, listen. Then after beginning that way, he ends in verse 9 by saying, If you have ears, then listen. Clearly, Jesus wants us to hear these words. I imagine a teacher in a training course, you've probably been part of a course like this at some point, who maybe teaches for three hours on safety protocols or something like that, and then they come to the end and they say, well, I've given you a lot of details over the last three hours, and it might be difficult to remember them all, but if you're only going to remember one thing... Remember this. And I think of Jesus as saying something along those lines, emphasizing this parable of the sower in such a way because of its importance. Well, why is this parable so important? Well, the disciples aren't even sure what the story means, nevertheless, why it's so important. So they come to Jesus after the crowds have gone home. They're alone with Jesus. Maybe they're debriefing on the day, and and they say, Well, Jesus, what does this parable mean? And so Jesus pauses in verses 10 through 13 to explain why he speaks in parables and why this parable is so important. Of course, on the one hand, any good teacher and preacher needs to be a good storyteller because stories have a unique ability not only to draw us in but to illustrate a point. And stories stick with us. You might be the same way, but I still remember Alistair Begg, who was the pastor I sat under for a number of years, dramatizing a conversation between a daddy fish and his son fish as they examined a worm that was squiggling in the water and just floating there. And it was illustrating the point about temptation and how temptation works. After all these years, I still remember the story and its point. Stories do that. So Jesus is an effective teacher by telling stories, but Jesus' parables do far more than just illustrating his points. Maybe we think of Aesop's fables, perhaps closer to what parables do. They're stories with a particular moral that reveal something about our hearts and lives. Who hasn't heard the the story of the tortoise and the hare and the moral of persevering diligence as the slow and steady tortoise beats the lazy hare? But again, Jesus' parables are not just stories with a good moral. They're more than that. As Jesus puts it, and he puts it this way in verses 11 and 12, his parables actually accomplish the will of God. His parables actually bring about the division between those who enter the kingdom of heaven and those who will not. Jesus says that he intentionally speaks in parables So that many will think that they are just good stories. They will not understand the spiritual point of the parables. And they will not turn and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. As Jesus puts it there, he says, To those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus is actually quoting words from Isaiah 6 here, where God called the prophet Isaiah and told him that his calling was to proclaim the, na- or proclaim the word of the Lord to people who would not believe him. Now, that's not a very exciting calling, perhaps. If you're the kind of person who likes to see results and likes to see good fruit from your efforts, Isaiah's calling would be a very discouraging one. You're going to proclaim the word to people who don't want to hear it and won't believe it. These are the words Jesus is picking up and he's saying that he speaks in parables precisely so that many will hear them as just stories and won't know what they mean and will not turn for forgiveness. In other words, to them it is God's word that comes, it bears witness to the truth, but only brings about judgment as they reject God's word in the hardness of their hearts. But to others, the parables reveal the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the way into the kingdom of God. The question is, who is it that will be able to understand and respond to the parables? Well, it's not the particularly wise or cunning person who says, Ah, I got it. I was able to figure out Jesus' parables. It's not the righteous person who really gets them. It's not the one who works really hard and thinks about them really long. No, Jesus says, it is to those whom it is given to understand as a gift. You see what he says there. He says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. In other words, it is those to whom the spirit of God comes by the grace and kindness of God to soften their hearts and open their minds to the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. Well, what is the secret of the kingdom of God? The secret of the kingdom of God is that God's kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God's son and God's servant, whom he has sent for that purpose. It was unexpected. It was not what people were looking for. But this is the key. And all of the parables come back to this point all of the parables will be inexplicable unless you understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that we are invited into the kingdom of God through faith in Him. But if you are given to understand the key to the truth by God's grace, then the parables become a window of light revealing the glory of the kingdom of God and bringing one to faith and obedience in Christ. So the parables are important as a whole. They will reveal our hearts and the kingdom of God, either confirming in judgment those who just hear them as stories or bringing salvation to the one who hears, knows that this is Jesus inviting us into the kingdom and responds. But if that's true of the parables as a whole, Jesus says in verse 13 that this parable, the parable of the sower, has a particular purpose— This parable is like the one parable to rule them all and in its meaning bind them to slightly misquote the Lord of the Rings for any Lord of the Rings fans. For this parable, Jesus says, will reveal the state of our hearts. How do we know whether we're one of those who has been given the key to understand the parables or not? How do we know whether our hearts are rejecting God's word or not? How will we know whether we have known the meaning of these parables or not. Well, the parable of the sower offers the key because this parable will demonstrate whether we stand under judgment by showing us to be hard, rocky, or thorny soil, or it will demonstrate God's grace for salvation if we hear it, receive it, and bear fruit, demonstrating that we have come to Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus emphasized the importance of this parable so strongly, telling every man, every woman, every teen, every child to listen. If you have ears, do you have ears? Hear this parable that you might know where you stand in the kingdom. So that's the importance that Jesus places on this parable. Let's let's move on then to verses 14 through 20, where Jesus gives us the meaning of this parable. The sower, Jesus says, is the one who preaches the word of God. The sower sows God's word, the good news of the gospel. In fact, this is just what Jesus is doing as he stands in the boat, isn't it? He's in the boat preaching to the crowds on the seashore and he's casting seed. He's sowing the word, the good news of the gospel, watching to see where it would take root. Now, the seed then, as it's sown as the gospel is preached, interacts with various soils, representing four different groups, four types of hearts, or four different responses to the word of God. The first group, the seed that falls on the path, is eaten by birds. And this group does not respond at all to the word, for Satan snatches it away immediately. This is the group whose hearts are not touched by God's word the offer of God's word seems foolish or ridiculous or out of step with what they believe to be true or perhaps they hear it and just think i don't need that and so they turn without any response in their hearts the second group the group the seed that falls on rocky ground does respond to the word of God it responds with joy and enthusiasm to the gospel But their enthusiasm does not last, because when suffering or persecution hits, they wither and fall away, demonstrating that they had no roots in Christ in the first place. Now, perhaps we don't know exactly why they withered when they faced persecution. Perhaps they were seeking their own benefit all along. And so they thought, well, hey, if Jesus is going to offer me peace and healing and help for my anxiety, then sure, I'll believe in him, only to discover that the call to follow Jesus is a call to follow him through suffering. Or perhaps they may have expected that Jesus would bless those who followed him with with wealth and health and success. Good things will happen to those who believe in Jesus, right? The crowds are growing. This is where the action is. But Jesus' words make one thing clear consistently right up front. Those who trust in Jesus will suffer. And those who follow Jesus should not do so for rewards on this earth, for those are never promised. We are offered rest and rewards and riches in heaven with Christ in the presence of God forever. But that comes after a life where we walk the road that Jesus walked. Through suffering. And we'd best count that cost right from the start, or we might spring up with excitement only to lose eternity with Jesus in the end. That's the second group. The third group, Jesus says, the seed that falls on thorny ground also responds to the Word of God. It springs up. It appears to affirm faith in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, this group does not dramatically wither and die. The description seems to indicate that it just never grows beyond its initial affirmation of faith and never bears fruit it's the little the little seedling that gets overshadowed by the weeds all around it is stunted and never grows and bears fruit the fruits of the spirit love peace gentleness repentance of sin obedience to god's word these fruits do not blossom in this life the fruits of god's gifts given, to be used, to serve his people and his kingdom never appear. This person says they believe in Jesus perhaps, but then they continue to live for the things of this world. They continue to focus on giving their heart to money, and possessions, to sexual pleasure, to this world's security and successes, and they are unable or unwilling to prioritize the word of god and the call of god so that they never bear fruit to his name. And it's this fruitlessness that demonstrates their true priorities. For as John, or excuse me, as Jesus says in John 15, whoever abides in me bears much fruit. But he who does not bear fruit the father takes away and is burned in the fire. But then there is a fourth group The seed that lands on good soil, it hears the word of God, it hears the summons to repent of sin and to put their trust in Jesus for salvation. And this group responds to it with faith and it produces a harvest, a fruit for the glory of God. And the emphasis here is on fruitfulness the emphasis isn't on how much fruit you produce. Some produce 30-fold fruit, some 60-fold fruit, some 100-fold fruit. But Jesus' comment isn't indicating that the 100-fold is better than the 30-fold. It's not a, a gradation of how much, how much did you accomplish for the kingdom of God here. That's not the point. The key isn't how much fold did you produce. The key is were you bearing fruit? Were you fruitful? The key is, in whatever way and whatever measure God ordains and desires, do you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in your lives? That's the evidence that the gospel has taken root in our hearts. And I also think it's worth noting that this fruit bearing is described here, and we wouldn't know it right away from the translation, I think. It's described as an ongoing description of the believer's life. It's interesting that the verbs Jesus uses for the first three groups, the path, the rocky soil, and the thorny soil, indicate a simple action that's done and that's it. They rejected the word. They sprung up and withered. They grew and choked. That's the verdict. But then with this fourth group, the verb changes to indicate an ongoing continual action. This group receives the word of God and goes on and on and growing and bearing fruit. It didn't just have one little harvest. It goes on and on in bearing fruit because it continues to be rooted in Jesus Christ. It continues to be connected to the vine. And as it continues to be rooted in the vine, this fruitfulness is an ongoing description of their hearts and lives. So here we have Jesus describing these four soils where the word is immediately snatched away, where the seed springs up but withers in the face of suffering and persecution, the seed that grows initially but then is stunted and never bears fruit due to the cares of the world, but then that which goes on and on in bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. If that's Jesus' explanation of the meaning of his parable, I want to end by remembering Jesus' opening words. Listen. If you have ears, hear this parable. He's telling us that we must hold this up to our hearts. And So let's end by considering the application of this parable for our lives. Three applications I want to make. The first application is really an application to myself as a preacher and to any one of us who shares the word of God and who prays and who longs to see people come to know Christ. And the application is just this. Not all the seed planted will bear fruit. You know, for years, I have watched some who came up through our youth group and went on to walk faithfully with Christ. I've watched others who have grown up in our youth group and gone on to reject Christ. I've watched others who grew up in our youth group and then rejected Christ for a time and then came back to Christ. There are many different results to the word that was sown. And at times that can be a discouragement because our desire is that every seed planted would grow up and bear fruit. And we want to see that now. How do we respond to such a reality though? This parable reminds us to any one of us who preaches the word, who shares the word, who prays for the hearts of people that we are not God. So we don't make the plants grow. Our job is to plant. Our job is to scatter the seed. It is God's job to give the growth. As as Paul says to the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gives the growth. And so we wait on him and we trust his character as the one who will bring the growth to his seeds. And we do that waiting knowing that our job is simply to scatter the word shortly after being asked to serve as a senior pastor here one of the members here of our church told me that they would like to paint a painting for my office wall and they asked me if i had any ideas of what i would want painted and i immediately knew what i wanted a painting of this parable the parable of the sower the painting is beautiful if you're ever in my office Look at the wall, you can see the job that this member has done, but it's there doing what I hoped it would do, because it reminds me every single week, my job is to scatter seed, it's to sow seed, and then it's to wait in faith on God who brings the increase, knowing that it is very likely in our congregation that all four of these soils will be represented. But We wait on him and trust in his character. As his seed lands on these soils. Well, that's the first application. But the second application is a question for every single heart here this morning. Whatever your age, whatever your situation, whatever your background, the question is simply this: What kind of soil are you? The parable is meant to divide between these soils and the seed that hits them. It's meant to reveal the state of your heart and the eternal consequences that are facing you. Jesus says that those who receive him find eternal life, but those who reject him have eternal punishment. Those are high stakes, eternal stakes. So what kind of soil are you? Have you calmly and coldly rejected Jesus? Or have you simply ignored Jesus and his invitation into the kingdom of God through faith in him? Have you responded enthusiastically to Jesus only to become jaded or cynical over the years? Have you received the gospel initially with joy only to wither under suffering so that you've decided, I can no longer really believe in God who ought to be treating me a whole lot better if he really loves me? As I think about this response, I was remembering the words of a fellow Christian in China. Western missionary was there talking with him, and he, he asked whether a certain man in their house church might be a good candidate for a leadership position. And this Chinese brother said, oh, no, oh, no, he can't be a leader yet. He hasn't been to prison yet. And this Chinese believer went on to say something along the lines of, we find it best not to trust our profession of faith too strongly until we have suffered for it. Now imagine this response compared to the response of so many of us in the West who come to expect security and comfort and are indignant at suffering. So the question is what will suffering reveal in us? Will suffering reveal in us the true roots in Christ with whom we are united in our suffering? Or will suffering reveal no roots, causing us to wither and fall away and reject the God? who has not met our expectations in our lives. Have you responded to the gospel in a third way, declaring that you believe it, but then you find that your desire for wealth or your desire to fit into our culture and its expectations and its definitions and its beliefs or your busyness with the cares of this world, do you find them taking precedence over giving yourself fully to Christ? and submitting yourself to his word, and walking in faith with him and obedience to his word. You know, we can easily be blind to this temptation. I think it's hard for us to recognize our materialism and our love of the things of this world when we and everyone around us just has so much of it. It's hard for us to trust the Bible sometimes and realize where we've departed from it when we're surrounded by and listening to the words of our culture and its definitions and its perspectives on things. In fact, I would think there is nothing more surprising at all than that there would be some who are born and who grow up and maybe even be here this morning, who assent to the existence of God, even maybe that Jesus was a real person, but end up spiritually stunted, bearing no fruit because of their desires for the world, for its goods, for its pleasures, for its acceptance, and for its beliefs. And so given Jesus' warnings, each one of us must hold up the mirror of this parable and ask, what kind of soil am I? Am I one of those three types of soils? Or have I trusted Jesus Christ? Have I responded in faith to him? Do I see my sinfulness and my need? And have I run to him? Am I growing and bearing fruit for his name? Do I recognize the eternal consequences of how I have responded? That's the second application. But the third, and finally, even as Jesus encourages us to ask about the state of our hearts, this parable makes an even more important point. And this is what I want to make sure we see and understand this morning. It's an important point that should fill us with encouragement and joy. Because God is the one who is spreading His seed all around the world. God, through His people, is scattering the seed and sowing it in Europe and in Asia and in Africa and in South America and in North America, in our congregation, in Lancaster and all across our country. And God, by His power, is guaranteeing that His word will not fail but that in every field there will be good soil that will bring about a harvest of souls who are his. He has given to understand this parable and his word to many. And his word is not just going to produce any old crop. It's going to produce a crop that will defy expectations and bring about a mind-boggling harvest. I want you to just think about the details here. I was reading an article about first century farming this week. And this article said that a typical first century farmer in Palestine could expect, on average, about a 10 to 15 percent increase each year on the seed that was planted. So he'd have seed, he would plant it, and would end up with 10 to 15 percent more seed than he started with. That's a very modest growth, but it was sufficient to eat and have seed for the next year. Well, that's 10 to 15%. Do you hear the percentages Jesus is talking about here? This harvest is going to be 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's 3,000%, 6,000%, 10,000% increase. Can you imagine if someone came to you and said, you know, I've got a great opportunity for you. I can get you a 3,000% return on your investments every year. Or can you imagine someone coming and saying, just come work for me. I'll increase your pay a hundred times. Well, we'd probably either laugh at them or politely decline and then go tell everyone about the scam we just got offered. And this is mind-boggling increase that Jesus is talking about here. And yet this is the kind of explosive growth that Jesus envisions from the word of God. When the word of God is preached around the world, it's not a 10% increase, it's not a modest growth, it's 30, 60, 100 fold. And 2,000 years down the road from when Jesus first told this parable, we're seeing evidence of this very fact. He is bringing a harvest beyond anyone's expectations. Could anyone who was sitting beside the Sea of Galilee, listening to Jesus tell this parable, have imagined the worldwide thousands of years growth in the kingdom of God where millions upon millions upon millions came to faith in Jesus Christ and joined the song giving glory to the Lord. This is an unexpected, incredible, worldwide harvest. It doesn't lead us to say, well, boy, a lot of people made great decisions in their lives. No, it's a harvest that leads us to say only God could bring about something like that. It is the fruit that only God's power and God's goodness and God's grace could work in the hearts of his people. And so as we come to the end of this parable, the thing that I want us to hear as we end is that Jesus' words are words of hope, There are words of promise that should increase our confidence in him, our joy in him, our eagerness for eternity with him and with these millions of fellow believers who will gather around the throne. It should increase our readiness together to say glory be to such a God who will bring about such a harvest for his name. Let's pray together. Father, your goodness is evident again and again when we come to your word. We think of Jesus speaking to the crowds on the shore, knowing that there were all types of hearts there, hearts that would not think another thought of him. They were just there for a good story. Hearts that might respond initially, but would fall away, would wither, and would not produce fruit. But then Jesus also knew There was good soil there. Hearts aware of their sinfulness, aware of their need of a Savior who would come to Him in faith, who would come to Him who would die for them but rise again to give them new life. Hearts, soil that would be just the beginning of an exponentially increasing harvest that would spread throughout the globe and across the centuries to the glory of His name. And how we thank you, Father, as we see that fruit. But how I pray that we would also see that fruit in our own hearts. How I pray that we would be willing to examine our hearts, even as we rejoice in all that you are doing to the growth of your kingdom and the glory of your name. I pray that we would find comfort and encouragement in that this morning. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.